You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. Ladies and gentlemen, Chris Cook, Alan Buck here, Game Day IQ, the Thursday evening tradition, Game Day IQ at gmail.com. We're heard weekly or bi-weekly or tri-weekly, depending on uh, how you, you catch us at thegruelingtruth.com. Alan Buck, say hello to everybody. Yeah, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, yeah, we're back here once again uh, in, these, in this peculiar time with all the cooties going around. Uh, our schedule's been a little bit discombobulated, to say the least. But we're here once again with a terrific show. You're going to hear, you're going to hear about a time when the greatest athlete in the world was a Hoosier. Uh, some little-known details about the affable Terry Bradshaw. Um, the story of how Mean Joe Green's alma mater uh, became known as the Mean Green. Uh, the true legacy of Paul Brown. And along the way, we'll talk about track, basketball, baseball, football, and even share a little bit about a female jockey. So stay tuned and have your game day IQ raised. And there's going to be a little treat for Chris down down the road, too. He'll enjoy, especially. I tell you, but, that's uh, the goal week in and week out when we have the show opportunity. We've got to raise everybody's game day IQ by at least a point, possibly two. Two is better than one, but, hey, we'll start at one. Alan, what do you want to kick off tonight with uh, out of all that stuff that you brought up just a minute ago? Uh, here's one that I didn't even mention a little. I should have mentioned to tease this. Um, well, how about if I say you're going to learn about the one Major League Baseball player in history who has hit over 100 home runs for three different teams. So give that a little bit of thought, folks, and we'll go down uh, memory lane here and, and, and ferret out some little-known facts to raise your game, the IQ in sports history, and we'll get around to the home run hitter a little bit later on in the show. Remind me, Chris, so I don't forget. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm old, folks. I forget things like this. <laughs> Here's something that uh, I, when I heard this, I thought, now this is a lesson I would take forward to every one of my ball teams um, in the future. On October the 4th, 1941, the World Series game score stood at the New York Yankees 2 and the Brooklyn Dodgers 1. Yep, that was a, this is another World Series in the famous Subway Series rivalry. The game was in the ninth inning with the Dodgers leading 4-3. to three. The first two Yankee batters grounded out to the infield. Tommy Heinrich came to the plate, potentially the Yankees' final out. Dodgers pitcher Hugh Casey got a two-strike count on Heinrich. The Dodgers had one strike to get to even the series at two games apiece. Heinrich struck out on a wicked curveball. Some some people thought it was a spitter, which was an illegal pitch at the time, but it got away from the catcher. 
So Heinrich took off for first, and he made it safely. Well, the Yankees went on to score four runs in the top of the ninth to win the game 7-4 to four and take command of the series with a 3-1 to one game score. Uh, you know, that, but for that one drop strike, it would have been a 2-2 two two tie. But the Yankees, uh, they ended up closing out the series the next night for a 4-1 to one World Series championship. Two lessons here. Always hustle until the bitter end, and it ain't over till it's over. It See what I did there using a Yogi Bear? Yogi Bear? <laughs> That's a Yogi Bear quote. Threw in a Yogi Bear quote on, in the, in the uh, Yankees' uh, World Series. But that's one of those things. The game was darn near over. I mean, just that one strike, that's all it took. So, folks, when, it, when you know, you young ballplayers out there, and for you older people that are listening to this, tell that story to your young ballplayer and say, hey, you know, two strikes on the last batter, the last out, and uh, the drop third strike, and he didn't stand there. He took off for first. So, anyway, I, I just I really like that. Uh, I had, hey, that reminded me back in, in uh, 13, 14 year old ball that I was coaching. We had a kid. We, we, our game went into extra innings. Went into nine innings. It's a seven inning game. Went into extra innings with runners in scoring position. Our one of our kids came to bat. He was a smallish kid. He was 0 for 5 on the day with five strikeouts. He put the game-winning hit into right field and scored the game-winning RBI. That kid was five strikeouts on the day. He could have been, you know, crying in his pity party, but he stuck his, you know, dug himself, dug himself, dug himself in. Pardon me, and uh, got the game-winning hit. So don't quit till you know it ain't over till it's over. All right, I'll get down off my soapbox. Sounds like a chapter uh, in the book. The next book. It, yeah, and you know what? I don't think I included that kid in the in the and he was. I I remember I did I did give the speech to the team after that game though because hey everybody strikes out and I promise every player that ever played for me they're going to strike out. It's not if you strike out; it's what you do after you strike out. And this kid, can you imagine Chris striking out five times in a game? What that would do to your confidence? And hmm. then. Uh, the game-winning RBI. So there you go. Hey, let's let's go to our birthday of the week department. Okay. Um, actually, we're going to cover the whole month, and so the standards had to be higher. You weren't going to make it in this month because we we've just been <laughs> off a little bit. But on on uh, September the first, nineteen twenty-three, Rocky Marciano was born. He passed away in nineteen sixty-nine. He was heavyweight boxing champion of the world from nineteen fifty-two to fifty-six with an amazing record of, listen to this, 49-0 and 0, with 43 of those fights ending in a knockout. Hmm. 43 out of 49 fights. I did not know. I knew the 49-0. and 0, He's the only heavyweight boxer to retire undefeated. But I did not know that 43 of those 49 were knockouts. That is impressive. So that, that was pretty amazing. Well, here is, uh, this is not a birthday. This is our little commemoration to a small chapter in the history of Indiana University's football program. On September the 1st, 1950, okay, people quit chuckling. I know everybody's laughing about <laughs> Indiana University's football program. On, on September the 1st, 1915, Indiana University football coach Clarence C. Childs announced that Olympian Jim Thorpe would join his staff to coach IU's backfield. He was a member of the Sacks and Fox tribes and born on the Oklahoma frontier 
Thorpe was orphaned as a teenager, and he became a ward of government schools. Well, he went on to uh, Olympic greatness, and uh, he was recognized as the world's greatest athlete. He won the modern pentathlon and the decathlon in the same Olympics, and uh, he just was an incredible athlete. And I did not know that he was a member of the Indiana University football staff. He was no, there for one either. year. Mm-hmm. And that, that's why I just threw this in there. So uh, there you go. Our game day IQs both went up a little bit. Tell you, we um, try to get that point in early this week. Yeah, we do. Well, here's some things that I know there are going to be some people out there that are going to do one of the, huh, I didn't know that. It's about Terry Bradshaw, born hmm. September the 2nd, 1948. He, was, he, of course, he's a National Football League Hall of Famer uh, in 1989. He's the winner of four Super Bowls in a six-year span. They won back-to-back twice, 74-75 and 78-79. His NFL accomplishments are well-known, and he continues to stay relevant as a football analyst and a co-host of NFL Fox Sunday. But here are a couple of things you might not know about Mr. Bradshaw. I think, Chris, I think you do, but I don't think our audience, many of our audience will. But when he arrived at Texas, Excuse me, at at Louisiana Tech, my mistake, a uh, little, little Freudian thing, you know, once once Bobby Knight went to Texas Tech, that that's kind of on my radar. But uh, this is about Terry Bradshaw. When he got to Louisiana Tech in 1966, he caused a media frenzy on account of his reputation of being a football sensation from nearby Shreveport. Well, Phil Robbins, Robertson, Oh, do we have Duck Dynasty fans listening, folks? <laughs> Phil Robertson of Duck Dynasty fame was a year ahead of Bradshaw, and he was the starter for two seasons in 1966 and 67. He chose not to play in 1968. As Robertson put it, here's a quote, I'm going for the Ducks. You can go for the Bucks." That was his quote to Terry Bradshaw. <laughs> Without that decision by Robertson, who knows what might have become of the talented Mr. Bradshaw. You know, back then, if you weren't the starter, you didn't just transfer and go start for somebody else. You no, you didn't have the transfer portal back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, Terry Bradshaw as a second-string quarter at Louisiana Tech might have wound up selling cars, at, you know, because he would have had a well-recognized name in the area. Who knows? But uh, that's what happened when Bill Robertson, he's the grandpa on the uh, – on the show, or the patriarch of the Duck Dynasty. Well, here's another one, and I, I just think this is such a fun story. Many of you all remember the commercial in which Terry Bradshaw is pushing a grocery cart with a bulldog in the basket. You, you remember that, don't you, Chris? Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't mean to offend bulldog lovers, but they're rather ugly in the face. Great, great dogs, don't get me wrong, strong physique, but that mud, yeesh. Well, anyway... Bradshaw's good friends with former Raider great and fellow co-host Howie Long. Long's considered by many to be a rather handsome gentleman, and he has a reputation for being rather proud of his good looks. Well, in that commercial, the affable Mr. Bradshaw is pushing the cart and talking to the dog, as many people do, and he calls the dog Howie. Well, that was an ad-lib line by Bradshaw um, directed at Long. It's just kind of a good-natured ribbing. Apparently Long's vanity was a bit disturbed by the good-natured jab from his friends. But, uh, hey, how can you not laugh at a line like that? 
<laughs> so anyway, happy birthday, Terry Bradshaw. I, I I hope people appreciate those two little tidbits and uh, don't know if I'm sure many do. people knew those things. Um, here is something that uh, this I, the, don't it, this hadn't happened often in Major League Baseball, and I don't think it. I don't know if it has happened again, but on September third, nineteen sixty one, Mickey Mantle hit two home runs against Detroit to go over fifty for the season. The day before, teammate Roger Maris hit two against the Tigers to get to 53. That was the first time in Major League Baseball history that two players from the same team hit over 50 home runs in a season. Maris, Maris finished with 61. Mantle totaled 54 for that season. So I, that's you know that's in baseball history, and that was when, when home runs were all legal and everything. Matter of fact. Didn't I think? Didn't Mickey Mantle? Didn't he drink a lot of beer and smoke a lot of cigarettes? Yeah. I'm not sure. I shouldn't cast. I should not cast aspersions on his training regimen. But let's just say, back then they didn't hit the weights and things like they do nowadays. <laughs> but, uh, is that is that fair enough? It's a fair assessment. Uh, hey, here's one that uh, my kids would be proud of me for including. You know, being the crusty old buzzard that I am and, and resistant to change, on September 3rd, 1986, that marks the birth date of Sean White. Do you know what Sean White's famous for athletically, Chris? Uh, uh, X Games like snowboarding. You're on it. You're on it, baby. The American snowboarder and winner of Olympic gold medals in 2006, 2010, and 2018. In case you were wondering, in 2014, he placed fourth. He also holds the record for the most X Games gold medals and the most Olympic gold medals by a snowboarder. Hmm. So there you go. Um, here's something else. This is not a uh, birthday, but this, is, this goes along with our ones who came before. This is out of England in, on September the 6th. 1992, a young lady named Gay Kellaway was a female jockey. She became the first ever to ride in a race with a TV camera affixed to her helmet. That's the first ever male or female. That was a race at um, in England. Apparently, um, it gave a great view of the other, other riders um, because well, she finished last in that race. But uh, um, the, the old helmet cam started with the young lady. So there you have. She is, how I, I shouldn't. I'm not disparaging her for finishing last in that race. She is the only woman in history to ride a winner at Royal Ascot. Hmm. She was the youngest ever amateur champion at 18, and the first woman to ride in the Royal Ascot Gold Cup, mm. and the first jockey of either gender to wear that camera in her helmet, as I already mentioned. But uh, wow. anyway, she certainly is one who came before um, uh, in, in the world of jockeys. And she made, I read a really nice article. She talked about how tough it was. You know, the jockeys club, club is just a good old boys club. And being a female, she had to overcome a lot of obstacles and, uh, you know, a little bit of hazing and those kinds of things. And uh, she just uh, told him, hey, you're not getting rid of me. And she continued to apply her trade. So 
you know, congratulations to Gay Kellaway for uh, all she did for women and jockeys. Um, and technology. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Mm. We've Do you got, ever think we'll see the return of helmet cam in football? I don't know. I think because it I was the world are, league, the world league of American football. I think back in the day that had the the helmet cam. Was that the one? Okay, I didn't remember what it was. I was going to say I think the NFL in particular is worried more about uh, other design uh, improvements in their helmets than putting a camera back in it. Um, they they've got a ways to go in the percu- uh, concussion protocol. But uh, well, speaking of football. You're going to learn something real here that uh, it's about Paul Brown. He was born September 7th, 1908, passed away in 1991. He was a good football coach, but he was so much more than that. He was, and you guys, people are, you're going to go, huh, I didn't know he did that. Well, while coaching high school in Ohio, his teams lost only 10 games in 11 seasons. Ten games in 11 seasons is all he lost, folks. That's basically going 10-1 and one every year. Um, he then was hired to coach the Ohio State University, uh, and he led the Buckeyes to their first national championship in 1942. I had no idea he did that. Well, everybody knows he was a co-founder of the Cleveland Browns and its first coach, and he was involved in founding the Cincinnati Bengals, and he was its first coach. He's credited with a number of American football innovations, he was the first coach to use game film to scout opponents. How about that? I bet you didn't know that, did you, Mr. Cook? No, I did not. He, he also was the first to hire a full-time staff of assistants and test players on their knowledge of a playbook. Here's, here's another one. He invented the modern face mask. Huh. He also created the idea of the practice squad. And he invented the draw play. Folks know the draw play. That's where the quarterback drops back as if to pass, hesitates, lets the running back go through without the ball. He'll run a short route. The wide receivers will take their routes downfield. Then the quarterback runs up the middle after the uh, linebackers and everybody have cleared the middle of the field, and hopefully the blocks are good. So draw play is a very effective weapon. Well, he also, those are all wonderful things. Those, those did help shape the way American football is today. I mean, the modern face mask, you know, that back, picture, picture a helmet, folks, with no face mask at all, and imagine what those faces looked like after a game. But anyway, uh, <laughs> he also played a role. Yeah, I, hey, throw, throw them out there, don't we? He also played a role in breaking professional football color barrier bringing the first African-Americans to play pro football in the modern era onto his teams. And here, here are the quote, here's a quote from what the great Jim Brown had to say about Paul Brown. And no relation, folks, but Jim Brown was arguably one of the best in the history of pro football. He was more of a fullback, but he had the speed of a much smaller man. But at weighing 230 in the, in the 60s carrying the football, uh, he was a hoss. Mm-hmm. Here's what Paul Jim Brown had to say about Paul Brown. Paul Brown integrated pro football without uttering a single word about integration. He just went out, signed a bunch of great black athletes, and started kicking butt. That's how you do it. You don't talk about it. Paul never said one word about race, but this was a time 
in sports when you'd play in some cities and the white players could stay at the nice hotel, but the blacks had to stay in the homes of some black families in town, but not with Paul. We always stayed in hotels that took the entire team. Again, he never said a word, but in his own way, the man integrated football the right way, and no one was going to stop him. Those were the words of Paul of Jim Brown regarding Paul Brown. Yeah. I had no idea he was involved in Mm-mm. integrating the NFL. So there There's you go, folks. Point for uh, everybody keeping score at home. That's right. That's right. Um, we gotta gotta pay a. Uh, Give a big salute, uh, also a September 7th birthday, 1923, to Louise Suggs, one of the founders of the LPGA, along with Patty Berg and Dave Diedrichson Zaharias. She was an inaugural inductee into the LPGA Hall of Fame in 1967, the World Hall of Golf Hall of Fame in 1979, and she was the winner of 58 professional tournaments, 11 of which were majors. From nineteen, listen to this. From nineteen fifty to nineteen sixty, only one year was she out of the top three on the money list. That's domination. Hmm. Uh, currently, the most accomplished first-year player on the LPGA receives the Louise Suggs Rolex Rookie of the Year award. So Louise Suggs um, did a lot for that sport. Um, here's something else. Uh, while we're on the subject of home runs in baseball, well, we were we were already on tennis, but uh, let's go back to baseball. This is a commemoration of a performance that took place on September 7th, 1993. You know, I go down to the dusty end of the library a lot of times, folks, but this is 1993. Never happened in Major League Baseball history. In the history of Major League Baseball, only 14 players have hit four home runs in a single game. Only two men have driven in 12 RBIs in a single game. Only one man has done both, and that was Mark Whitten, who was playing for the St. Louis Cardinals in a doubleheader against Cincinnati on September 7, 1993. Whitten hit a grand slam in the first inning. In the sixth, he hit a three-run homer. Again, in the seventh, he collected a three-run homer, and in the top of the ninth, hit a two-run shot to tie both records and become the only man to have done both in the same game. You notice, folks, I said that was the second game of the doubleheader. Ironically, Witten had gone hitless in the first game. How about that? As Mel Allen would would have said, how about that? (laughs) I, I just thought that was pretty cool. So... Mark Witten, folks, only man in history for 14 uh, to hit four home runs and get 12 RBIs in a single game. Um, let's go back to a birthday. Let's go to golf. One of the greatest okay. ever. One of the most. The, if I said, Chris, who do you think was the man who popularized the game of golf the most? Who brought it out of the, you know, from the old days into the modern era of really popular golf? among across every man across the country. Oh. Oh. That's that's well, a tough one to ask. There have been different eras, know, the, but I mean Tiger Woods the, has done a lot, but I know it goes back farther before him. And yeah, the um, one that really opened it up was uh born on September tenth, nineteen twenty nine, 
and that would be Mr. Arnold Palmer. That's what I was going to he go was, for, or Nicholas or Palmer. Yeah. Well, he was one of the most popular players, uh, golfers of all time, and along with Jack Nicholas and Gary Player, they were known as the big three. They popularized the sport of golf. So, yes, those three, and they were all contemporaries. Palmer was a little bit older uh, than Player, and Nicholas was younger by uh, considerably younger but palmer won 62 victories on the pga tour seven of which were majors those seven were from the masters in 1958 through the masters in 1964 so that's 25 majors of those 25 he won seven that's that's almost one in three one in three and a half that is amazing and through all of that, he remained a likable sort. Uh, he, was all, he always had a huge following on his rounds, and they were called Arnie's Army. And uh, he was, you know, he was, didn't, didn't get uh, surly as, let's, let's use that adjective, as some, you know, very famous people are. He was always, you know, friendly with everybody. So happy birthday to Arnold Palmer, one of the game's great ambassadors. Um, hey, by, this is, Odd coincidence, but uh, we already talked about rock. Haverty's Furniture is here to help you get your home all set for the new year so you can set the stage with more style, set the bar more beautifully, and set a more show-stopping table. Let's set some time aside to settle in on a new sofa together because being at home shouldn't mean having to settle for less. And Haverty's Furniture can help you start the new year off right at their holiday savings event so you can create the perfect setting. And right now, everything's on sale store-wide. Maris. His birthday was September 10, 1934. Um, his, he, he, uh, when he hit 61 home runs in 1961, which I already mentioned, he broke Babe Ruth's record of 60, which was set in 1927. Well, Ruth's record was set in a 154-game season, while Maris's record came courtesy of a 162-game season and a last-game home run. So naturally, that sparked the argument. Um, you know, I'm sure people will put an asterisk by that. But still, he did it, and he played on a World Series winning teams with the Yankees in 61 and 62 and with the Cardinals in 67. So uh, some legendary accomplishments there from Roger Maris. Uh, Chris, we haven't um, talked about, well, we haven't talked about Jesse Owens in a while, but his birthday was September 12, 1913. Everybody knows about he was the winner of four gold medals in 1936 Berlin Games at a time when Adolf Hitler wanted to use those Olympic Games to show that his Aryan race was superior to blacks. Owens proved otherwise. And I read a lot about this. I've read conflicting accounts about how this rankled Hitler. According to Owens, Hitler had a time when he arrived in his box and a time to leave his box and the 100-meter race started late enough that Hitler had to leave before the medal ceremony, and that's why he wasn't at the medal ceremony. It was not a deliberate snub. In fact, Owens said that as he walked toward the medal stand, Hitler uh, saw him from a distance, and he acknowledged Owen with a wave, and Owen waved back. Then I read the other side of it was the words of Nazi minister Albert Speer, who stated that Hitler, quote, was highly annoyed by the series of triumphs by the marvelous colored American runner, Jesse Owens, end quote. So sorry for the <laughs> rough language, folks, but that was, that was the way they phrased it back then. So I don't really know. 
you know, according to Jesse Owens, Hitler nodded and waved at him, and uh, um, according to others, he was a little bit miffed. So that, it was very interesting to read up about that. Could you imagine getting away uh, from Adolf Hitler? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, hey, how about uh, September 15th, Chris, 1961? Does that ring a bell with you? Mm-mm. A member of the class of 83, Dan Marino, NFL oh. quarterback, played his entire 17-year career with the Miami Dolphins, his Hall of Fame election in 2005, his first year of eligibility, quite naturally. Get this, Chris. He was the last quarterback drafted in the first round of the 1983 draft, which was the year of the famed class of 83. Uh, folks uh, that aren't quite aware, maybe some younger folks, that class of 83 included John Elway, Todd Blackledge, Jim Kelly, Tony Eason, Ken O'Brien, and as I said, the last one of that group drafted, Dan Marino. That's a heck of a first round of draft picks for quarterback position. And uh, um, I would say Marino and Elway were the best two Um uh, so Probably wasn't uh, Umar Sison in that? Uh, Tony Eason. Tony Eason. Uh, Boomer, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. I think Boomer might have been a year or two later. He was close, but Eason uh, still took the yeah, Patriots to a Super Bowl. Who did? Uh, Tony Eason took the Patriots to a yes. Super Bowl. Uh, I, I, yeah, I thought that's what you said, and you were, yeah, you're definitely correct about that. And Jim Kelly because they beat the Miami four. Dolphins in the AFC Championship game. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, uh, I tell you, of those, I would say uh, Marino was the best pure passer. Elway, of course, was also able to run, which um, Marino didn't quite have. El- Elway was blessed with speed as well. But you know, of those <laughs> of those six, Jim Kelly uh, took. You know, went to four Super Bowls. Did Blackledge, Blackledge never made it with the Chiefs, did he? He never made it to the Super he Bowl. He did not. Think. Okay. All right, well, let's get Remember back Remember, last to... year was the first year in 50 years that the Chiefs made it to a Super Bowl. Well, duh, you're right. I'm Boy, I okay, sorry, folks. That was I, a quarter in the cookie jar. From, and that, that's more like a dollar last, mistake. Last, last season, I should say. It seems like last year, 2020, has been so... Uh, <laughs> bogged down. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, it is. But, uh, yeah, it, it was uh, – that's why I, I figured I'd throw that out there. And, again, Marino's accomplishments were fantastic. They were phenomenal. Uh, and he, he, you know, he never quite had all phases, all three phases of the, of the team in – well, believe that, we'll make it a fourth. The offense was strong but didn't always have – quality running, you know, a single quality running back to, uh, you know, balance his passing ability. Um, Marino only had one solid. season with a thousand yard rusher. Right. And who was that? It was Bernie Parmalee, I believe, the former UPS man that they got off the street that had a thousand yards. Holy cow. There's a story in itself. They have to look yeah, him I mean, up and see when his birthday is. So a lot of folks him. don't realize that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty impressive. Yeah, that's that's the thing. I know you've mentioned that before, and that's why I wanted to bring that up. 
his play Actually, was my so fault. Good. It was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, Parmalee got close, but uh, the only 1,000-yard rusher to ever team with Dan Marino was uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And I, I believe it was in 1996 he had over 1,000 no relation, yards. No relation to the no. NBA star, correct? No. Okay. My guess would be he would have been named after him, though. Yep. But who who knows? But uh, anyway, yeah, those guys. Um, the, and those he only ran talented. for eleven hundred and sixteen yards in his rookie season, and he averaged three point six yards a carry to get that thousand. Holy cow! Eleven hundred and sixteen. He probably got pummeled. Did he? He probably didn't last in the league very long, did he? No, I think it was four years. Yeah. But, well, that's, uh, that's about that's about average, average for a running back. The average lifespan of a running back is three seasons, I believe. Yeah, I, I was thinking it was three and a half, but yeah, it's right in there somewhere. So, but I, but if you average three and a half yards per carry and you gain eleven hundred yards, that's, that's a why, bunch of mileage on those you know, legs. What Frank Gore has done, I think he's played seventeen seasons. That's, I saw he's now mm-hmm. with the New York Jets. I mean, that's for a running back and to be yeah. productive. Mm-hmm. Um. I think Canton might be calling his name, even though he doesn't have that. I don't think he has a championship, but still with his yardage and what he's done over his career to put a little modern spin on that running back discussion. I mean, it, it's amazing. Yeah, you're absolutely right. When the, uh, when the Colts got him, I kind of was one of these naysayers rolled my eyes and thought, Oh my God. And then I watched him be productive. I thought, how in the world is he doing that? But, um, yeah, Frank Gore is pretty amazing because he really he's not the biggest back around. He doesn't he's not the fastest around, but somehow he gets the job done. And speaking of talented running backs, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the passing a couple of days ago of one of the greatest of all time, Gale Sayers. Um, his career was cut short by injury, but when he was, it, do yourselves a favor, folks. You know, if even if you're the young ones and not ever seen Gale Sayers. Get on the Google machine and find some of his highlights. Most likely, they're not, they'll be in black and white. They were in the mid '60s, uh, like '64 through '70, maybe something like that, roughly. But he, uh, he, his, he, he kind of reminds you of Barry Sanders in a way, as far as the way he would be running straight forward, and then he would stop and and make a not a jump cut exactly, but a you know 90 degree cut. And then off to the races once again. And when he ran, he was he looked more like a um, thoroughbred gliding down a backstretch than you know than a than somebody going through a lot of. I mean, he he glided. He he, he was so graceful when he ran. I do have to throw so in quick. a point of order on Frank Gore. Um, yeah, he's in his 16th NFL season, not his 17th. So I wanted to correct myself. That's that's all right. I I didn't realize he was up that high. And yeah. uh, as far as all time leading rushers, he's creeping up there. I think he'll stop at around three, four, or four, five, or six, somewhere in that range, won't he? Um, uh, but I'm trying to um, find his uh, his stats over the power of Google. Um, hold on a second. Uh, if you keep talking, they'll come to me. Yeah, yeah. Chris is pretty quick on the Google machine. We uh, 
Um, Frank Gore is number three currently. He's a thou- He's thirteen, thirteen, just under thirteen hundred yards behind Walter. And of course, Emmett is another seventeen hundred ahead of Walter. Uh, yeah, Frank Gore passed Barry Sanders. He's ahead of Barry Sanders by one hundred and sixty-five yards. So yeah, yeah, I agree with you one hundred percent, Chris. Uh, Canton will be calling Mr. Gore's name. Uh, I don't think he'll get Emmett Smith uh, at eighteen thousand oh, no. three hundred and fifty-five. I don't. I don't think he'll get Walter. I think that I. I and I don't wish him ill, but I. I, I don't think he will play after this season, and he's not going to get. How many kids hurt. he has, Alan Buck? <laughs> yeah, touche. But he. That wit, Chris, has a, has a little bit of an edge to it. Well, I'm just <laughs> saying, I mean, if I had a family and mouse to feed and, uh, yeah. you know, I could get a couple carries and make a, a league minimum, that's a paycheck. Yeah, it is. But uh, he, he's got 1,300 yards to go to catch Walter, and um, I don't think he's going to make that. Not with the New York but, Jets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That would – well, even regardless – um, he w- he's not going to be an every down back, so 1,300 yards would take him two to three seasons to get. And uh, but hey, that's just all speculation. We're just we're just all throwing that out, stuff out. Um, I got uh, another birthday of a of, of a truly a legend in sports. September 20th, 1970. Arnold Jacob. Auerbach. Very few of you knew that his first, Red Auerbach, first and second middle name, were Arnold Jacob. A lot of people might have known the Arnold, but nobody knew Jacob. But. So there you go. Arnold Jacob, Red Auerbach, NBA coach and executive for the Boston Celtics. As a coach, he set – I didn't realize this. I didn't know he was that good of a coach. As a coach, he set NBA records with 938 wins and nine championships. He retired from coaching in 1966 and moved to the Celtics' front office. As general manager and team president of the Celtics, he won an additional seven NBA titles for a grand total of 16 in a span of 29 years and making him one of the most successful team officials in the history of North American professional sports. Well, those accomplishments are rather well-known, but here are some things you probably never knew about Red Auerbeck, and they might be more important contributions to the sports world than all of his championships. Auerbach was vital in breaking down the color barriers in the NBA. I didn't know that. He made history by drafting the first African-American NBA player, Chuck Cooper, in 1950. He introduced the first African-American starting five in 1964, and he hired Bill Russell as the first African-American head coach in North American sports in 1966. Had no idea. So Red Auerbach and Paul Brown broke the color barrier for their respective sports, and they're both born in the month of September. And Auerbach was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame in 1969. The NBA Coach of the Year Award is named after him. And in 1980, he was named the greatest coach in the history of the NBA by Professional Basketball Writers Association of America. That was in 1980. So if anybody wants to say, well, gee, what about Phil Jackson or what about uh, 
Greg Popovich, well, that's fine. They came after. But anyway, in 1980, that's how he was regarded. So, um, is everybody still thinking about uh, what baseball players hit 100 home runs for three separate teams? Um, we'll get to, we'll get to that momentarily. Some people are driving their car, so they're not uh, they're not on the Google machine, maybe. But um, on September the 24th, 1946, Charles Edward Green, better known as Mean Joe Green was born. He's a former defensive tackle with the Pittsburgh Steelers from 1969 to 1981. So he played with Terry Bradshaw during those four Super Bowl wins. He's the recipient of two NFL Defensive Player of the Year awards, five first-team All-Pro selections. Um, As I said, he helped lead the Steelers to four Super Bowl victories in six years, winning back-to-back championships twice, Super Bowls 9-10 and 13-14. Well, Here's a legendary story about Green's alma mater, the University of North Texas Mean Green. And the legend has it that it was named after him. And that's what I always believed. That is patently false. During the time when Green was playing, this is just coincidental, he was playing for the North Texas State Eagles. They were trailing Texas Western, which is now UTEP. And in the crowd, in the stands, was Sydney Sue Graham. She began cheering things such as, come on, Green, get me, or here we go, Mean Green. Well, the crowd picked up on that Mean Green uh, theme, and it became an unofficial nickname for the team. The year was 1966. Well, Sydney Green mentioned that to her husband, Fred, who happened to be the school's sports information director. Well, he thought it was too corny. Still, he decided that bury the nickname way down in one of the press releases for the team later that season. And when he used it, the press picked up on it. And by 1968, it was an unofficial second moniker for the school's football team. Well, Hayden Fry was hired as head coach and athletic director in 1973, and he immediately embraced that distinctive nickname and promoted it as the team's main handle. Um, so, and then when Rick, Rick Villarreal became the athletic director a little later on in 2000, and he made Mean Green the official nickname of the school with the eagle as its official mascot. So, um, contrary to what many people might believe, the folklore about Mean Joe Green lending his name and his nickname to his, his college being renamed, which, by the way, North Texas State uh, university is now the University of North Texas. So it, it got its name changed. But anyway, no, it was the uh, wife of the sports information director that just happened to coin the phrase or two, and it got picked up and uh, took almost 35 years for it to become official. But uh, that's a pretty, pretty cool story, and I'm sure it was a lot of fun when you're in the crowd cheering. And uh, and by the way, the team did, uh, did rally and beat... Uh, Texas Western in the game. I knew people would want to know. Um, of course. Here, here's one. Um, here is a. I bet you you would not know this fact. If I asked you, what women professional tennis player is the winner of the most Grand Slam singles titles? What would your answer be, Chris? 
there are several um, from which to choose. And I'm Martina, and I'm not. I'm, I, no, that, I that think Martina is. If you count the doubles, I think Martina is the overall. Okay, this is just straight singles. That's Steffi Groff. Really, my guess would have been Serena Williams. On September 26, 1981, Serena Williams was born. She is a professional tennis player and winner of 23 Grand Slam singles titles, second only to Margaret Court's 24 titles. I had no idea Margaret Court was the leader in Grand Slam singles. I would, have, I would not have argued with Steffi Graf. I would not have argued if he said Martina. I would have guessed Serena, and we were all wrong. <laughs> so Margaret Court holds that distinction. Never would have known that. She was, uh, I believe, Australian, if I'm not mistaken. And no, I didn't look it up, folks. I'm, I'm just going off of being 100 years old and having a memory. September 27th. This is our last birth date, and then we'll get back to home runs. Our last birth date, September 27, 1939. Kathy Whitworth, World Golf Hall of Fame, 1975. She won 88 LPGA Tour events more than anyone else on either the LPGA or the PGA Tour. 88 Tour events. Now, listen to this. From 1966 through 1973, she was named the LPGA Player of the Year seven out of those eight years. That's domination. And again, somebody like that, you can read about her legendary stats and, and achievements and accomplishments all over the place. We don't feature things like that, but something like that nugget, seven out of eight years, the LPGA player of the year. Uh, you know, Tiger Woods didn't do that in the, in the men's side. Uh, no other, you know, women, that's just unheard of. But that's how dominant she was. Uh, I imagine you have gotten on the Google machine and you've looked up the home run hitter, have you not? Actually, I haven't. I have not. Okay. I okay. would guess, though, uh, the only person that I know that hit home runs that played on multiple teams would be Reggie Jackson. Ding, 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 folks. That's why he's sitting in the seat here. He's the uh, I, Yankees, I Angels, and A's, I would imagine, right? You are correct. Um, you, you, you got him a little out of order, but if I would ask you to put him in order, I know you could do that. Oakland, then the Yankees, then the Angels. But, yeah, folks, that is uh, – Mr. Cook is a football guy primarily, um, but he just happens to know a lot of things about well, – a, a little bit about the, a lot of things. The truth be and, told, my first baseball met Alan Buck, and you know how back in the day they were autographed yep, by major all, league all players. All of them had autographs. Mine was uh, a Roger mine was a, mine was a Reggie Jackson. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So that's well, he hit 269, hit 269 with Oakland, hit 144 with the Yankees, and 123 with the Angels. Um, but that's – now, I, um, I just threw that in here. I didn't talk about the, the time that he hit the four home runs in a row in the World Series. Um, those were on four consecutive pitches. First pitch each time he, he took him out of the yard. Those, so if you ever, you know, everybody's heard about the four in a row, and that's when he got the nickname Mr. October. But um, all four were hit on first pitches. I don't think that's ever been done since. Yeah, that, that's just truly amazing. Too. Not on four consecutive uh, pitches. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's, that's something. Hey, let's, um, I, I got a really a hilarious quote 
that I think I might have shared with you once before, but I've never had it on the air here. This is from Alan Minter. He was a British middleweight boxer in the 70s. And he says, this is about, about boxing. Sure, there have been injuries and even some deaths in boxing, but none of them really that serious. <laughs> I don't know. I would, I would consider a death to be rather serious. But uh, anyway, um, let's, let's leave you with something a little bit more inspirational. Here's a quote from a, a lovable old uh, football coach and announcer. Self-praise is for losers. Be a winner. Stand for something. Always have class and be humble. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is from Mr. John Madden. Wow. What do you think? That's, that's pretty good, don't you think? That very is succinct, pretty good. Very Ooh. succinct. Self, yeah, self-praise is for losers. Be a winner. Stand for something. Always have class and be humble. That kind of encapsulates pretty much what we try to espouse to, you know, in the high school uh, level when we were uh, broadcasting and all. So anyway, that's all I had. I thought that was, uh, that, was, that was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun doing the research on this, and I hope people do appreciate and, and uh, you know, pick up on some of these little tidbits they throw around. And, and you know, the uh, Phil Robertson, everybody knows him as the old, you know, crusty old buzzard at the end of the table on, on Duck Dynasty. How many of them knew he was the starter ahead of Terry Bradshaw at Louisiana Tech? Heck of a football player. But uh, did you notice the irony in that quote I, I, get, I read that he was re- t- talking to Terry Bradshaw? I'm going for ducks, you go for the bucks. I think Mr. Robertson did all right for himself. Yeah. Yeah, I, so. I think he did uh, just fine. Well, I tell you, um, I don't have anything else today. I would uh, turn it back over to you and say good night to all good sports. For Alan Buck, I'm Chris Cook. Thank you for listening to this edition of Game Day IQ at thegirdlingtruth.com. control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. Need an extra hand with dinner? Just ask your connected home device to fill your pasta pot, and Delta Faucet Voice IQ technology will fill it with the perfect amount of water. Visit deltafaucet.com slash voice IQ to discover more.